Well, it's turning into the geopolitical program here. I can't say I'm complaining. It is only one more episode for those that are wanting more traditional fare. We have Duncan Wood, Vice President for Strategy and New Initiatives at the Wilson Center. He was at the Global Mining Symposium last week, put on by the Northern Miner. And I thought, okay, you know, let's do a bookend here. So now we have Duncan Wood, Vice President for Strategy and New Initiative at the Wilson Center, which according to Duncan is between the White House and Congress, if I remember that correctly. And so we're going to get a very established view of what is happening in the metals markets, the geopolitics of metals, which again, is just becoming more and more important. I mean, Duncan Wood says it's a dramatic situation. The shortage of critical materials that the United States has relative to China. China has been stockpiling and Duncan is reaffirming that. And I guess what we could say, what Paul from the Sirius Report and Duncan Wood from the Wilson Center have in common is the West is woefully short and woefully unprepared for the current situation in commodities and the current shortages in critical materials. Uh, you know, mentioning something along the lines of a, a Manhattan Project or a NORAD, as he puts it, or the critical materials space where Canada would play a key role as they do in NORAD, the security arrangement, an acronym I haven't heard for a while. So all very interesting and all very topical. And I thought, you know, maybe this is, uh, let's balance out last week's, you know, super interesting discussion with Paul. Let's balance it out with someone who's maybe less critical of the West and kind of more in the established sort of the Wilson Center, let's just look this up. Is this a think tank? The Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars is a quasi-government entity and think tank which conducts research to inform public policy. So it's a think tank that is in Washington, D.C. So, you know, here is what we might consider a more, you know, for lack of a better word, mainstream. And for me, I don't come out with knowing all the answers. I find these all just interesting ideas that clash. So all very interesting. So something more for the intellectual feast that we are preparing for you here. Part of our, you know, Global Mining Symposium series, which has been going on for a few years now, which grew out of the Canadian Mining Symposium. And we continue to get awesome guests like Duncan Woods. So a very exciting show coming up. Turning to the markets, you know, we've got quite a rally going on here. And I guess the big question is, is have we found a bottom or is this a dead cat bounce? You know, we're already almost at 4,200 here. We're at 4,158 on the S&P 500. I don't know if it's anything to write home about. If we go to copper is at $4.34 per pound, US 10-year bond is at 2.74. So almost like a bit of a return to what we might consider normal. And I guess people are a little less freaked out right now. However, with all that being said, maybe the fly in the ointment in the market situation is the price of oil. And here we have West Texas at $117 per barrel and Brent crude at $121 natural gas at $8.74. So this will continue to put pressure, one imagines, on inflation. And apparently there is a big inflation print that everybody is waiting for on June 10th. And 
you know, the has inflation peaked? This is what everybody wants to know. And if we get a lower reading than last time, which was in the, I don't know, eight and a half percent range, if you get a lower reading this time around, there is probably going to be a big chorus saying that we have peaked in inflation, which in my universe is probably a little premature, but this is probably what will be said. So lots going on here. And also coming up, we have our Mining Legends Speaker Series on June 8th at One King West Hotel in Toronto at 10.30 a.m. You can still reserve your ticket. It features Pierre Lassonde, Chairman and CEO now of Firelight Investments, and Ashley Kerwin, Co-Founder, President, and CEO of Oryx Geoscience. And that is only in eight days. You can reserve your ticket today. It includes a three-course meal, gourmet lunch. And tickets are $85. They are selling. Last time they sold out. So just go to events.northernminer.com and you can pick up yours today. Again, that's the Mining Legends Speaker Series with Pierre Lassonde and Ashley Kerwin. And that is on June 8th. A wonderful networking opportunity if you are in the mining scene in and around Toronto. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Justin Smith of SRK Consulting for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Justin Smith, Principal at SRK Consulting, to this week's CEO Spotlight. Justin, welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. Hi, Adrian. Happy to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, we have dealt with SRK many times in the past, and you guys are really just a consistent presence in the industry since I've been involved, at least. So tell us, uh, you guys put together an article or a paper of sorts on how to get more value out of exploration. I think a lot of our listeners might be interested to hear what that's about. Tell us, what is that about? Yeah, we've been dealing a lot with, you know, exploration clients, and we're usually in the in the room when these plans are being presented to the the C-suite of a company or or the board. And, and oftentimes there's a huge amount of money that is spent on mineral exploration for a mining project. And the key concept of the paper that we're putting out is we should really be trying to maximize the return on investment for that much money. So if you're spending $10, 20000000 million and you go into the room with people and, and present this idea, the question always comes up, well, what are we getting for that money we're spending? And I have been in the room a lot of times and the response was, well, we'll have to finish the program We'll have to spend the money to tell you what we're getting from it. And the idea that we're presenting is it doesn't have to be that that much of an unknown. What we'd like to see more of is starting to actually, you know, check that. You you have an idea that you're trying to present. When you're planning on drilling holes, more often than not, you're targeting something. So you have an idea of what you expect to find. So the, the key concept is let's just assume you're successful and then build a model around that and test the value and see if it's worth going after. And that's the key idea that we're trying to get across. And before we started recording here, you're telling me a great sort of practical example of like as if there was 
you know, a high grade beneath the mountain and not so high grade outside the mountain. Could you refresh our memory? Because I thought that was a very illustrative uh, example. Yes. I was working in a mine in eastern Nevada in the U.S., and they had two pits, and they were looking to expand the operation and add more metal to it. And they had two targets that they could go after. One of them was between both pits. It was very low grade and shallow. The other target dipped back down into a mountain and was very, very high grade. We're talking open pit grades, not underground here. But I was dipping back under this mountain and that's where all of the focus was for exploration. And I was a mid-level mining engineer at the time and looking at it and saying, well, there's a whole mountain here. It doesn't really matter if we find the grade. And no one was really interested in hearing that because they just saw we have a lot of, of metal in the ground here. And so the whole program was built around going after that good grade. And, and what I did is I went back and said, okay, let's, let's assume we're successful. And I, I put all that grade into a model. And then I also brought in that that middle zone between the two pits. And then I checked the economics of both and I actually looked at what we could mine from it. And the low grade in the middle was actually fantastic because it came in, but it also allowed both pits to go deeper because they had less waste to mine through. They now had more ore in them so they could actually mine deeper. And all of that very good grade going under the mountain was just a, a sliver of extra material and it had almost no impact on the value of that mine. And so if they had gone in and spent the, the $10 million to go drill a few holes into that and build roads and everything else, they'd have gotten nothing for it. Yeah, and I think it's just, uh, it's almost just human nature to chase after the bright, shiny object. Uh, we have high grade, a bonanza. Let's go chase after the, the riches. Now, how do you go about doing this? Do you have computer models? Do you have software? Like, how does one go about that in this day and age? Yeah, that's that's probably the the key factor here on on why we're bringing this up again because I think to an extent people have always done what I'm talking about to to some level here. And the key difference now is, you know, building a model like this could have taken months in the past. And if you had to work on sections and things like that where you're 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 drawing it by hand or digitizing on a computer, building the model out, testing things and it's it's very time consuming very labor intensive and, and fairly costly. Now with, with modern technology, we can set this up if we already have something built where we just load in the new holes and, and click go and it pops out a new model for us. It's not perfect and it's not fully validated, but at least it's a tool that we can use to, to test an idea and see if it actually adds any value. It's the the basic scientific method. You have a hypothesis and you test it. And all we're suggesting here is that before you spend millions of dollars, test it first. Is this more geared towards, say, I guess, exploration companies? Or is this also geared towards, say, like a barrack or a larger company? It's really for everybody. More developed minds would actually benefit the most from this because they, they probably have everything set up to do the calculations we're talking about. They just need to add the data in. Uh, the only place this doesn't really work is on very, very new deposits or very conceptual deposits where they really don't have a good understanding of what's there. 
So it's already a bit of a guess, and we're putting another guess on top of a guess, and you're not really getting much accuracy there. But if you have a good understanding of what's in the ground, I guess the difference is prospecting versus exploration. So prospecting, you're just trying to find an interesting anomaly, and then you start sort of finding the extents of it and so on. But when you get into resources, you're actually quantifying how much metal you have in the ground or, or whatever material you're, you're going after. And that's the stage where this really starts to make sense. Okay, so just to clarify, and correct me if I'm wrong, so it's kind of after you start drilling a little bit or you start to get a sense of what's going on, then you bring in someone like SRK and they can help sort of really kind of help avoid the situation that we're describing with the Nevada mountain, you know, to help with the strategic way forward to kind of not make things that can make or break a project. Yeah, I think it's, it, I don't know that it makes or breaks a project every time, but it, it certainly is, is just trying to maximize the value that you get out of, out of the money that you're spending. And, you know, some of the uh, things that we're talking about, you know, it's, it's not a guarantee of success. It's just assuming you are successful, what does it look like? As a good example, we implemented this at a mine in Papua New Guinea. This was helicopter supported drilling, every drill pad had to be uh, guys came up with machetes and cleared the jungle on very steep terrain. It took two weeks to build a drill pad and they wanted to get the most value out of every one of them. So we did this on a site that had five separate pits that, that kind of connected up in some areas. And we asked the geologists to, to just pick every drill target that they wanted and plan all of them. And they had hundreds of holes planned. And what we did is we just modeled them all and we added them in. And then we, this was open pit, so we did pit optimization on it to see the extents that would be built. And then we looked at the impact that every individual hole had on the value of the, the property. In this case, they were going after tonnage, and we just ranked them by tons. Which one at, what added the most tons to the resource, because that's what the corporate objective was for that mine. And we started drilling in that order. And as we drilled, we were able to get real-time data back with handheld scanners and even visual uh, estimates were close enough that we put that back into our virtual model, rerun it. And in some areas where they were drilling, what their guess was early on was wrong and it wasn't there. And so instead of drilling more holes on that pad, they'd bring the helicopter in, lift it out, take it to another pad and start drilling there on the next target. And then if they were on a drill pad and they exceeded what they were expecting, they just stayed longer and drilled more holes. And the goal of that was to hit a billion tons of ore. And we exceeded that about three quarters of the way through, went back to the C-suite of the mine and said, hey, okay, we've, we've met your objective. Now what do you want to do? And they, they actually pivoted the whole plan and said, okay, well, now let's look at increasing our reserves and increasing the confidence. And so we just took the same list and re-ranked on what met that new objective. And then that's where we pivoted the drilling to. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, as the cost of energy increases, I imagine this just becomes more and more important to not screw up, in a sense, to not drill the wrong areas and to drill the right areas, right? The costs almost get exponential now as it's not cheap energy anymore, generally speaking. Oh, absolutely. And uh, supply chain issues are having a big impact as well. Trying to find a drill right now is quite difficult. So you might only have a few months of drilling time available. So you want to make sure that you're drilling the right holes while you're doing it and not, not wasting money and waiting to the end to see what you, what you got. 
Okay, excellent. Now, as we wrap up here, so let's say I'm a mining company. I'm interested in what you guys are doing. So what do I do? Like, let's say I want to continue the conversation with you and say, hey, I have this project. We've actually just done a couple of things here. We might be able to use your expertise. Maybe this is a good idea for us. What should they do? can certainly reach out to me at, at SRK. Uh, my email address is jsmith at srk.com. And then uh, we, we also have a website, srk.com, uh, where you can go on and search whatever region that you're interested in and find experts in exploration that can, that can help and even projects that we've worked on. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Justin Smith. That was very interesting. This is Justin Smith, principal at SRK Consulting. Thank you for joining us for this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And turning to the website, China drags down entire industrials metals complex, according to Fitch. It's by Henry Lazenby. Analysts expect slowing Chinese GDP growth to weigh on most metal prices in the near term. However, they also note there are strong fundamentals providing optimism for metal prices to see some revival in the second half of 2022. While metal prices remain highly sensitive to developments in China, the world's largest metal producer and consumer, Fitch Solutions Country Risk Team, has flagged increased downside risk to China's real GDP growth forecast, which stands at 4.5% for 2022. Fitch cites a regulatory crackdown on technology firms, weakness in the real estate sector, and lockdowns in place in major cities as having severely undercut economic activity, denting demand for metals. And of course, yeah, many people are talking about this, these lockdowns. I mean, we remember what happened with the lockdowns in the rest of the world when we all shut down. I mean, our economies tanked and then we were forced to have serious accommodation from the Federal Reserve. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the world's second largest economy. Continuing on, metal prices have been volatile over the year torn between conflicting drivers on the supply and demand sides. After COVID-19 and the Ukraine war, supply constraints combined with historically low inventories, Fitch flagged Chinese lockdowns, weak economic data, and devaluation of the yuan, combined with an EU decision to exclude base metals such as aluminum and copper from sanctions on Russia, turned sentiment towards metals to heavily bearish since last month, triggering a heavy correction. I didn't hear about that, did you? that the EU decided to exclude base metals such as aluminum and copper from sanctions on Russia. Like, think about that. Think about what a shortage there must be or how much of the supply that Russia runs for the EU to exclude aluminum and copper from their sanctions. And we have a quote from the report here. A recent slew of negative global economic readings have revived growth concerns, driving industrial metals back into decline following a muted attempt at recovery in early May. We highlight copper that has erased its gains and is now negative year to date. End quote. And they have another quote. Although prices have fallen steeply since April, they remain high in historical terms, reflecting that the metals markets remain generally undersupplied as evident in global inventory levels. And this is what you start to hear more and more, is that there's just not enough metal to go around. Things that seemed theoretical 10 years ago and far off in the future, it's like that time has finally arrived when, again, we just hear it over and over from people that seem to know what's going on in these commodity markets, that there is just not enough metal to go around. Continuing on, for instance, nickel prices have retreated nearer to their pre-conflict levels, correcting price distortions in March. 
Still, tight market dynamics will support prices above 2021 levels over 2022-2023 levels, while low inventory levels will leave prices heavily exposed to supply shocks once the current economic clouds start to dissipate. And this is the thing. So we have these very high oil prices amidst, you know, major releases from the strategic oil reserve ongoing, from what I can tell, and a complete lockdown in China for what seems like four or five weeks. What happens when China reopens? So that seems to be, you know, the tone here. And let's just look at aluminum quickly because they talk about Europe and aluminum and we touched on that. Similarly, aluminum also faces supply side risks stemming from low and falling inventory levels, particularly in Europe. European aluminum smelters are curbing their output as soaring energy costs render production uneconomic, said Fitch. With little relief on the horizon for oil and gas prices, supply curtailments remain. As with nickel, supply-side drivers are currently being overshadowed by bearish Chinese data, and we do not expect a sustained reversal in the price trajectory until the second half. So remember our aluminum episode where we were quoting Javier Blas's book, where aluminum is known in that industry as congealed electricity? And so European smelters are probably not able to sell their aluminum on the world market or supply Europe because their energy costs have gone through the roof. So this is another factor. Like it kind of all boils down to energy at the end of the day, because if you don't have energy at a reasonable rate, all your other metals are going to be affected. I mean, we were talking to Paul about this. So, you know, we are starting to get a little bit of clarity on just how important, I mean, I'm sure... Many of you out there already understand this, and we all kind of understood this a little bit, but we are getting, I think, a little bit more clarity on just how important energy is to this equation. It's a, it's a simple idea. If you asked six months ago, everybody would say, of course, but one thing's for this to be abstract and other things for there not to be enough aluminum in Europe because of energy costs. It's getting real. So anyways, moving on, demand for green metals from recycling expected to grow According to a new report, this is by Vantina Ruiz Leotode, who is quoting a recent report by White and Case, and it says here, as the ESG spotlight shifts onto mining in the metals sector, there is increased interest in recycling as a source of green metals. And again, like it, it almost gives this impression of a touch, just a touch of desperation. It's like there's not enough metal. We need to recycle. And of course, it, that's good for you know the circular economy that everybody's talking about but it it may be just a necessity and we have a quote from the report here that says smelting scrap metal for recycling also requires significantly less energy than the initial process of refining raw materials into metals meaning lower emissions i mean we're back to energy aren't we isn't this interesting like we're we can all have our theories on things but you see how real this is getting. White and Case's report also points out that the shakeup of global supply chains by COVID-19 and geopolitical conflicts has also shone a light on the downsides of interdependencies, leading countries to look inward for sources of commodities, including the potential use for scrap. And we're back to European aluminum. Data collected by the New York-based firm shows that global demand for scrap metal is expected to remain strong over the coming years. 
owing to increasing demand for metals across a range of industries, such as automotive and construction, as well as ESG considerations that favor the use of recycled materials to reduce carbon emissions. Quote, For instance, the European aluminum industry in its circular aluminum action plan has established a target to satisfy 50% of EU demand for aluminum using recycled materials by 2030, compared to the current levels of 36%. Given the strong demand for scrap metal and its important for metals production, several countries have sought to reserve the domestic scrap supplies for their own metal processing industries, including by taxing or prohibiting the exportation of scrap metal. And you wonder, a lot of these numbers are putting in place probably a lot of assumptions that regular global supply chains are going to run as they should and that people aren't going to hoard, as we're starting to hear about with agricultural supplies. Who's to say this won't happen with metals as well? So all very interesting. Read the whole story on northernminer.com. Demand for green metals from recycling expected to grow. Turning to Canada here, Glencore has suspended production at the Raglan Mine in Nunavik. After workers' strike, and this is a nickel mine, this is by Naimul Karim, production at Glencore's Raglan Nickel Mine in Nunavik has been suspended as hundreds of unionized workers went on strike for the first time in 25 years on May 27th. Nearly 98% of the 630 workers from the United Steelworkers Union, local 9449, voted in favor of strike in late May, citing issues including the use of subcontractors, deteriorating labor relations, as well as a lack of respect. The strike was enforced on May 27th after negotiations between the parties amidst a government mediator failed to break the impasse. Quote, Glencore has been continually pushing the limits, said Eric Savard, president of Steelworkers Local 9449, in a press release. Quote, it even balks at providing a proper lunch hour to workers who are working 11 hours a day, 21 days in a row. It's reached the point where those who refuse to work overtime are given the cold shoulder by the bosses. It's time for this company to show greater respect for the workers who are generating its profits of tens of millions of dollars each year. Raglan Mines Vice President Pierre Barrett said, however, that the company presented a fair offer that would have made the mine employees, quote, among the best paid, end quote, in the mining industry. The union's actions are particularly disappointing considering the recent arrival of an independent mediator and the openness the company demonstrated to improve the initial offer. Sounds like quite a standoff in Nunavik. And so you can read that entire story on the northernminer.com. And just a few more workers at Baffinland asked Canada to approve mine expansion. And this is another strange story. Cecilia Jamasmi, unionized workers at Baffinland Iron Mines Mary River Iron Ore Operation on the northern tip of Baffin Island in Canada's territory of Nunavut are urging the federal government to approve the company's request for a shipping limit expansion. I've never heard of a union coming out and saying to the government to speed up your uh, approval of of this project or of this expansion. After four years of consultations and deliberations, the Nunavut Impact Review Board rejected on May 13 Baffinland's request to more than double output to 12 million tons a year, eventually reaching 30 million tons annually on, and they did it on environmental grounds. The board cited, quote, significant adverse ecosystemic effects, end quote, on marine mammals such as narwhals, fish, caribou, and other wildlife, which in turn could harm Inuit culture as the main reason for the decision. So these things are complicated. Read more about it on thenorthernminer.com. And just a couple more headlines here. B2 Gold to buy Aussie Junior Oclo Resources. 
And it sounds like this is about B2 Gold expanding their footprint in Mali because Oklo has their flagship Dandoko Gold Project, which is located 30 kilometers east of B2 Gold's 7.1 million ounce Fakula mine. I guess B2 Gold has figured out how to work in Mali. I mean, it's a bit of a hot spot out there in West Africa. So another interesting story. And First Majestic sells La Guitarra silver mine to Sierra Madre in an all-share deal. That's by Naimul Karim. So a bit of jostling in the silver miners there. And that deal was an all-share deal worth $35 million. Under the deal, First Majestic will receive 69 million shares of Sierra Madre at 65 cents per share. So I guess First Majestic will get a significant part of the company in return. And we have a quote from Greg Liller, Sierra Madre Gold and Silver's COO. And he said in a press release, quote, I've always believed that Katara is one of the largest undeveloped silver opportunities in Mexico. The eastern portion of the district was host to large high-grade mines that were significant producers during the Spanish colonial period. This area has only seen limited modern drilling and exploration. Read all about it on northernminer.com. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on May 31st, gold is trading at $1,855.46 per ounce. That is $3 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.99 per ounce. That is $0.05 cents higher than last week. And platinum is trading at $961.61 per ounce. That is seven cents higher than last week. And palladium is at $2,038.70 per ounce. That is $29 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is four cents lower at $4.26 per pound. Aluminum is five cents lower at $1.28 per pound. Lead is two cents lower at 95 cents per pound. Nickel is five cents lower at $12.63 per pound. Tin is also lower at $15.44 per pound. That is 30 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at $33.75 per pound. And zinc is three cents higher to $1.73 per pound. Zooming out, what do we see? I mean, precious metals hold steady from last week. I mean, hardly a change in almost all of them. I mean, platinum changed seven cents. Uh, The biggest change was in palladium. And that was just, you know, considering the rodeo that palladium normally is, that is not a big deal, this $29 move. I'd say the interesting observation is from the industrial metals side, where they have pulled back a little bit, but they're still very resilient. I mean, we look at nickel. If $12.63 per pound nickel is a pullback, that says quite a bit when we look to a year ago when nickel was traded about $7. And again, this is with, remember our first story, where Chinese demand is hurting metal prices. So we have $15 tin 
you know, a year ago, year and a half ago, we were looking at $9 tin. So if that's our pullback, look at $1.73 zinc. You know, a year and a half ago, we we're at 92 cents. So that's our pullback. Uh, you know, what happens when China reopens? And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Duncan Wood, Vice President for Strategy and New Initiatives at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. And he is interviewed by Northern Miner reporter Naimul Karim at the Global Mining Symposium last week. And there are many takeaways here. But basically, as we mentioned in the introduction, Duncan points out how China has a massive lead over the United States in terms of securing the critical materials they need. And he also goes in depth on lithium and the recent nationalization of lithium in Mexico and what it means. So I hope you enjoy this interview and I will see you on the other side. once again to another edition of the GMS. My guest today is Mr. Duncan Wood. Duncan is the Vice President for Strategy and New Initiatives at the Wilson Center, which is a nonpartisan policy forum that tackles global issues through independent research. He's also an internationally renowned specialist on North American politics, Mexico, and U.S.-Mexican ties. He has authored and edited 12 books and is currently co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Transparency and Anti-Corruption. He was a professor and the director of the International Relations Program at the Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México in Mexico City for 17 years. He received his doctorate in political studies from our very own Queen's University in Canada. Duncan regularly gives testimony to the U.S. Congress on U.S.-Mexico relations and also recently spoke about the importance of critical minerals. In fact, he also talked about the geopolitics around the demand for critical minerals in a podcast run by the Ontario Mining Association called This is Mining quite recently, the link of which is available in the box in case anyone's interested in taking a peek. Duncan, welcome. How are you and where are you joining us from? Uh, thanks for having me, Naimal. Doing very well. Delighted to be here. I have to say it's a great opportunity to speak to folks that uh, I don't necessarily get the opportunity to speak to always. And I'm speaking to you right now from my office at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., right here in right. Federal Triangle, halfway between Congress and the White House. Right. You recently co-authored a paper called The Mosaic Approach, where you write about the need for a multidimensional strategy between the government, private institutes, and international allies to strengthen America's critical mineral supply chain. How would you rate America's current position compared to its competitors in the mining sector currently? And what are the challenges it faces? Thanks. So let me just tell you a little bit about the work that we're doing at the Wilson Center on Critical Minerals right now, but a number of different projects. Uh, it really all began a few years ago when our Latin America program began to look at the lithium triangle down in uh, the southern cone and began to look at the strategic importance of that. We also have uh, long-term work going on at our environmental change and security program here at the Wilson Center on the environmental and ESG implications of, uh, of critical mineral mining. And then what we did about, a, we began about a year ago was looking at the Biden administration's strategic review of supply chains, we began to focus on critical minerals as our first dimension of looking at US policy. And we called together a significant group of stakeholders, US, European, Canadian firms in the space. 
And we decided that rather than go what the, the same route that the government had, uh, had gone, which was really to look at critical minerals from a national security perspective, what we've done is we've called together the companies to say, give us your on the ground, you know, where the rubber hits the road kind of experience and tell us what are the challenges that you're facing and where you see this going. And that's been extraordinarily productive for us because it's enabled us to really get up to date information and uh, information from the experts. And so for all of those companies that are, that are listening to this or watching this uh, symposium right now, I have to say, if you're interested in getting engaged, please just sort of just reach out and we'll be happy to have conversations with you about including you with our critical minerals working group as we move ahead. Now, the Mosaic approach was the publication that came out of that uh, stakeholder engagement. It's a relatively short document, only around sort of 20 pages long, 25 pages long. But what it's done is it's a document that is written for U.S. policymakers. And so it is you know, necessarily a little bit simplified from the complex reality. But we put forward a series of recommendations in there, which we can talk about a little bit later on. But perhaps the most important part of the document, at least at the beginning, is to say exactly where are we as a country? And in the United States, I, the first thing we have to recognize is that we are starting from a huge deficit. The Chinese have a massive lead over the United States in terms of securing the critical minerals that they need for their national security needs, as well as for the energy transition, which is underway. And because of that, and because of the massive and rapidly growing demand that we're seeing in the sector, urgent action is needed because otherwise the United States could be shut out from the supplies that are desperately needed for the energy transition. What we're seeing right now, for example, is that the previous presenter talked about the EV revolution that we're underway. You know, if the Biden administration has its way so that by 2030, half of all the new vehicles that are sold in the United States are EVs, there are simply not enough critical minerals being mined in the world today to satisfy that, let alone what happens when other countries go through that same EV revolution. So it's, an, it's a dramatic situation. It's a, a very serious situation. What's good about what's happening here and the fact that you know, publications like ours, and there's lots of them out there now, the great thing about those publications being out there is that it's really incited a lot of interest. So we're seeing the Biden administration, as I mentioned, with its review of supply chains and critical minerals. We've seen the Biden administration use its uh, Defense Procurement Act recently, focus that on, on the critical mineral sector. We're also seeing congressional action, not just the hearings that we've had recently, but meaningful moves to try to encourage, promote the mining industry here in the United States. And just let me just give you a couple of examples of what, what we're talking about there. I mean, one is smoothing the, the permitting process. Secondly, it's about all the other things that need to happen to really promote mining from finance through to human capital, et cetera. But thirdly, I mean, one, one very simple thing is that we need to do a heck of a lot more geological surveying here in the United States. I was fascinated listening to the panels already this morning, talking about the analysis that's been done, the surveying that's been done in Ontario and finding out where these reserves are. We have a long way to go here in the United States. So whilst what's happening right now is really encouraging, it's horribly insufficient. And the real danger there is that people say, well, haven't we addressed that already through the Biden administration review, the DPA, and the fact that we're talking about legislation? This is a long-term goal 
of making sure that we need the critical minerals that we need for the energy transition, for national security concerns, but also, and I think this is one of the most important things that we often forget, it's not just the minerals that we know that we need, it's the minerals that we don't know that we'll need in the future. You know, go back 50 years and would we have thought that lithium was as important as it is today, for example. I think that's a perfect example. You know, the fact that manganese is now being considered as being a replacement for some of the cobalt that can be, you know, go into EV technologies. All of these things, we need to be open and we need to think about a multi-dimensional approach to this. And that's really why we talked about, why we titled the paper, The Mosaic Approach, because it's got to be lots of different factors coming together. You also mentioned in your paper that the U.S. needs to do a lot more work with its allies in this sector, including Canada. In Canada, the federal government recently announced $3.8 billion investment in the mining sector, which was you know, the largest of its kind. What do you think the two countries need to do more of in order to improve the sector? The first step, actually, I think really is here in Washington, which is that we need to have a more clearly defined strategy, which we don't have at this point in time. We have kind of a piecemeal approach. Secondly, the relationship with Canada is uh, hugely important. It's a close relationship. And on the critical minerals front, as with so much else, it's a relationship that has huge potential for mutual benefit. The two countries have an action plan, a joint action plan on critical minerals, which so far has not really delivered a great deal. I think a lot more focus and effort needs to be put into that. But Canada is important to the United States for so many reasons. The mining culture that we all know exists in Canada, which is largely you know, being extinguished in most of the United States, not in all of the United States. The mineral resources that are there that we know about and that we don't know about. You know, Canada matters because if we're looking at the energy transition, Canada is a huge producer of renewable energy through its hydro resources, amongst other things, which means that being able to extract these critical minerals in as environmentally friendly a way as possible is going to matter in terms of the greening of the value chain. And you know, one of the things that I like to say here is that you know, we, we can talk about collaboration between Canada and the United States. Some people here in the United States talk about a Manhattan project for critical minerals. I like to think that Canada and the United States can enter into a, a highly you know, mutually beneficial relationship that is really like a NORAD for the future. You know, it's working together to try to make sure that the United States and Canada have what they need. Now, in terms of what the federal government in Canada is doing, you know, 3.8 billion may sound like a lot to your average man or woman in the street, but it's a tiny amount compared to the investments that are needed. It may be important in terms of getting things going, as we're seeing with the Defense Procurement Act here in the United States. But one of the things that has really stood out for me as well this morning by listening to the presentations is the importance of going back to brownfield sites as well as greenfield sites uh, sort of you know, located right next door. And the history of mining in Canada, the fact that we have so many sites where you know, we know there are resources that either were given up on because of a lack of capital or that you know, they were not financially viable given the technology of the time, that's a huge opportunity to get production up and running relatively quickly. And the other thing that's very, very important, I mentioned permitting earlier on. Here in the United States, it takes between seven and 10 years to get your permits for a, uh, for a mine. That's because of a number of reasons. A complex permitting process, you know, which is really based upon the U.S. democratic model of the, you know, the federal system, the division of powers, checks and balances, etc., but also because of the litigious culture in here in the United States and and a large dose of nimbyism. And I'm not saying those issues don't exist in Canada, 
but in order to get your per, your permit in, in in Canada, you know, we're looking at an average of two years compared to seven to ten years here in the United States. Which means that if we need a rapid ramping up of production, Canada really is one of the most important places to go to alongside Australia. Apply all of these factors together. Look at the new tech that's available, and I think we're in a really good place. And Canada is being seen as a vitally important strategic partner in terms of the critical minerals equation. We recently saw Mexico working on nationalizing lithium. We've seen similar trades in other countries as well. Going forward, do you see more and more countries taking similar steps? I mean, how do you foresee the geopolitical tension surrounding the sector? So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the Mexican case, first of all. You know, it's the Bacanora mine in, in the state of Sonora. Very impressive lithium resource, 244 million tons. You know, some people say it's the largest in the world, uh, exceeding the uh, the Thacker Pass site in, in Nevada. I'm skeptical about whether this nationalization approach will be successful in terms of producing lithium and maximizing value for the Mexican government and in terms of production of lithium for the world. Now, if they are successful, it doesn't really matter whether the resource has been nationalized or not, as far as the United States is concerned. The United States just wants to make sure it has access to that critical mineral. But yeah, my opinion, as I'm sure is the experience of a lot of people on, on this uh, symposium, is that uh, state-owned enterprises tend to be less effective. They tend to suffer from problems in terms of financing, profitability, and the tech that they have access to, as well as the human capital. And that's going to be a real challenge in, in Mexico. Add into that the water challenges that we see in the state of Sonora, extremely arid state, facing you know, increasing desertification. And you know, the fact that it, recently in Mexico, we've seen water politics playing a very, very high profile role uh, in national politics and in the bilateral relationship. You just go back a couple of years and Constellation Brands, a US brewing company, was forced to cancel a $1 billion brewery project in the northern Mexican city of Mexicali because the new, then new Mexican federal government said that they shouldn't ever have been given the permits to produce there. I suspect that Mexican lithium production will be marginal for the near future just because it's probably not going to work exceptionally well in the case of that resource. Now, the Chinese are investing in that. Yeah, the Mexican government is going to work very closely with that Chinese investor. I could be wrong. But what I see is that, honestly, throughout the region, the nationalization of resources, of critical minerals resources, is an important tendency, a trend that we should be aware of. We're seeing governments become increasingly uh, interested, not just in uh, monetizing the, uh, the resources, but in making sure that they have full control over them for geopolitical purposes. You know, a very, very interesting article that I would urge people to read from the, the most recent Wilson Quarterly on the US relationship uh, with the Democratic Republic of the, uh, of the Congo. The DRC is, is re-evaluating its relationship with the Chinese because they realize that it hasn't been nearly as beneficial as they would like, and the Chinese have really used it as a lever, a political lever over the government of the DRC. I think we're about to see a lot of that. I think we're going to see a playing off of Chinese versus U.S. interests. And this will increase as we see decoupling taking place between the U.S. and the Chinese economies. There are opportunities to be had there for companies and for countries in uh, seeking to maximize their benefits they can get. Something similar to what we saw in the original Cold War in the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States, 
I think that's coming up in the in the very near future. Do you think, in terms of you know the, the trend of nationalization, do you think it can it's it's something that can survive in terms of the quality of the products? You can see a nationalization of the resource, but it's how you approach the actual exploitation of the resource. And so that's what's important about the Mexican case. You know, in Mexico, all subsoil resources actually belong to the state anyway. So this piece of political theater that we recently saw in the country, which was about nationalizing lithium, the lithium was already nationalized. It was already owned by the state. If by nationalization, they mean that they're nationalizing the entire value chain, as used to be the case with the oil and gas industry, then that's problematical because they won't be able to maximize the benefits and the value from those resources. If, however, they just say, we own it, so we want to be paid royalties and taxes, then that's fine. We can certainly work with that because that's what we do in a lot of countries anyway. But I suspect that, you know, just given what I know about the current Mexican administration, they're looking at setting up a state-owned enterprise to exploit that resource. So, you know, in, in Canada, and there might be a similar situation in the U.S. as well. There are several early stage projects for critical minerals like lithium, for instance. But analysts do say that you know, by the time a number of these projects come online, they might end up supplying to an overburdened market. Do you foresee something like this happening in, in you know, 2030, 2035, since so many companies are entering the critical minerals hunt? Listen, I, I think that lithium is a very uh, interesting case. We've known for many, many years that there's a lot of lithium out there in the world. It's not one of the most abundant minerals. The question is, you know, can you get the access to the resource that is going to be you know, cost competitive, that's going to have the right level of quality, purity, et cetera? If you look at that, you say there's going to be, there's going to be competition between different resources for all of those factors, including, of course, ESG standards. Because if you don't satisfy the environmental, social, and governance standards, then you're going to have a tough time getting the financing that you need. This is one of the biggest things that people forget about when we talk about uh, reshoring, nearshoring, ally-shoring, is that you know, a country like Canada, Australia, the United States, they have huge advantages in, on the ESG front. And yes, I mean, you know, reshoring means that there is more of an environmental cost taking place in our backyard, but the overall environmental impact is probably going to be less just simply because the standards are higher. The second part of the equation is this. Demand is going to remain very, very strong for lithium. The IEA uh, you know, recently published a, a study back in 2020 where they predicted that by 2040, demand for lithium will be 42 times what it was in 2020. So over the next two decades, a 42 times growth in demand for lithium. That means that we're going to see you know, huge demand and, and whether or not you can get enough mines going in that time or extractive processes in general to actually make that, to satisfy that demand is another question. And particularly when we throw in that initial factor that I mentioned, which is you know, the quality, cost, location, ESG standards. Beyond 2040, we enter into a, a different kind of equation which is that recycling efforts. You know, the, 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 the EV industry in particular is saying, we want to be able to recycle as much of our EV batteries as we possibly can. Let's see how that works out. We're not good at that at this point in time. But if we are to make that work, we need to have enough lithium as well as other critical minerals actually in the system for them to be able to be recycled when that time comes. And that's going to require a Herculean effort on the part of policymakers, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level as well, 
to make sure that it happens. And the corporate interests, in particular, the GMs, the Fords, et cetera, need to be involved in that process as well. Guys, fantastic conversation. We are unfortunately up against the clock. Let's at least get one in from the audience. We have a lot of audience engagement on this, Duncan. Speaks to the quality of the conversation you and Namal are having. I think, Namal, the one from uh, Frank, who is the executive chairman of the African Think Tank Minerals African Development. He's uh, Duncan, he's asking about what the implications are specifically to Africa with this need to secure. I mean, touch a little bit about China and Congo and how that's going on. Can you press down a little bit more? Yeah, so I mean, from the point of view of the of the US government, there is a recognition now that there is an urgent need to engage with producers of critical minerals wherever they may be in the world. From the point of view of the investors, there's greater skepticism in terms of whether or not ESG standards are gonna be respected. And so, you know, there's, I think, we're in a situation right now where it's in the interest of the US government to begin a global conversation on ESG standards around the world for the extractive industries. Yeah, we have EITI, we have the ERGI initiative here in the United States. We need to see a process where we begin to pull that together. Because if we can get to a point where we have a harmonized approach to ESG across the world and we're able to secure compliance then we're able to, we'll be able to get the financing that we need to make these things happen, as well as satisfying the demand that we're going to see. So I think that's where African nations, the African Union, may play a very, very important role in talking about how you actually make that a reality. And, you know, we'd be delighted to have some of those conversations at the, uh, at the Wilson Center. Fabulous. All right, gentlemen, we are going to have to leave it there. What an excellent talk. Thank you very much, Namel. Thank you very much, Duncan. Lots of food for thought here, and it'd be great to have you back at some other point, Duncan, to continue this. We'd love to. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you, Anthony. Well, there you have it. Surprising overlaps, if you ask me, between Duncan Wood and Paul from the Sirius Report, particularly that China is way ahead in its stockpiling critical metals and how urgent the issue is. Coming up next week, we have our Mining Legends speaker series with Pierre Lassonde and Ashley Kerwin. Just go to events.northernminer.com and get your tickets while you can. Last one sold out. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.